to the Weekly Defence Podcast, the show about defence procurement, military technology and the industry that gets the kit into the hands of the warfighter. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Helen Haxel, Air Domain Editor here at Shepherd Media, and I'm coming to you from Shepherd Towers in West London. But before we kick off, we'd love to hear what you think of our new podcast. So please do subscribe and give us a review on iTunes and perhaps a cheeky five stars on your review. On the show this week, our editor-in-chief, Richard Thomas, speaks to David Willems, Head of Business Development at UMS Gelder, which is a UAV joint venture between Sweden's Saab and UMS Aero of Switzerland. I will be speaking to our Special Operations Forces editor, Scott Gawley, about last week's SHOT Show and what he learnt from the event. And our sponsor, NAMO, provides this week's Industry Voice segment. But first, our weekly news roundup, and I'm here with Richard Thomas, Editor-in-Chief. Hi, Helen. And Beth Mondrell, Deputy Editor of Land. Hi, Helen. To talk about what's caught their eye this week. Beth, if we could start with you, what's been going on in the land domain that's caught your eye? Well, this week it's been a little bit of a quieter week for us in the land domain. However, one of our contributors, Alex Mladenov, who often covers Eastern European topics for us, filed a story on the Russian Navy's coastal troops' introduction of the Chrysanthema S self-propelled anti-tank guided missiles. Now, this anti-tank guided missile system is an interesting piece of kit because it is based on the BMP-3 infantry fighting vehicle chassis. Now, the Russian military has a number of BMP-3 IFVs in its inventory already, and typically they are equipped with a two-man turret, which includes a 100mm 2A70 gun, a coaxial 30mm cannon and a coaxial 7.62mm machine gun. Now, to fit the anti-tank guided missile system, this has all been completely stripped off. And if you head to the Shepherd Media website and take a look at the picture that accompanies the story, you'll see how like interesting this vehicle actually looks. Is, is there any indication as to where it might be deployed, where this capability will be based? So... Um, According to reports at the moment, the first system has already been delivered to one Russian coastal troop brigade, and that is stationed in Kaliningrad, uh, the enclave of the Baltic Sea coast. Thanks, Beth, for that insight. Richard, could you give us a bit of a lowdown on the sea domain? Absolutely, be my pleasure. Yeah, I'm going to go all maritime patrol aircraft this week, I think. Um, (laughs) Gordon Arthur, uh, he's our Asia-Pacific editor. He's been in Singapore for the past few days covering a show there. He wrote a a really good piece about uh, the dearth of these type of platforms in the Asia-Pacific region. So I recommend you go to the website to check that out. I'm actually going to highlight more in depth uh, another piece of news um, regarding NATO, and that's the the announcement that uh, 19... Boeing P-8 Poseidons will be manufactured. This is the Lot 10 manufacturing phase. It's a contract worth about $2.5 billion. So the US Navy will receive 10 aircraft. The UK will receive four, which will actually complete the UK order of nine in total. And Norway will get five. Um, If you break down that $2.5 billion uh, number a little bit more, you see that Norway's paying roughly $139 million per aircraft, uh, with the US and UK uh, paying about $125, $126 million each. So, Rich, obviously three nations have the same aircraft now. What is the significance of this sharing of a platform? 
There's a couple of significances, I think. I mean, it, it looks like Boeing's uh, P-8 Poseidon is becoming NATO's de facto maritime patrol aircraft. If you think the US is using it, and Norway will, the UK will, Australia is, New Zealand is. But also there's another significance with the fact that this contract is for Norway, uh, the UK and the US, and that these three countries uh, have spent a lot of time and effort in the recent years in uh, introducing more cooperative uh, plans and, and arrangements um, for the use of the aircraft. If you think that the US will base some of their P-8s at RF Lossiemouth, um, with the UK, of course, um, and Norway has signed uh, cooperation agreements um, with the US uh, regarding the aircraft. Um, so what you've got is these three northern, well, these three northern NATO countries, effectively what they'll do is monitor the Greenland-Iceland-UK gap. And this is a key maritime choke point through which uh, Russian submarines or submarines um, would have to pass if they want to gain access to the North Atlantic. So this this MPA trio will be focused on that region, I think. Helen, anything in the air? <laughs> anything in the air. There's loads of things in the air, Richard, but I can't go into all that right now. This week, our correspondent from New York, Jason Sherman, reported on the US Navy, which has formally launched a competition to replace its ageing fleet of TH-57 Sea Ranger training helicopters. They've been in the fleet for nearly four decades now. Um, the US Navy is offering more than $900 million prize to the OEM that can best meet its requirements to deliver 130 roadcraft over a five-year period for its advanced helicopter training system, which is dubbed the THXX. I'll be looking at the usual suspects for this kind of thing. Oh, yeah, of course, Rich. I mean, Bell and Leonardo have put their hat in the ring very early on with this Um the RFI was launched back in 2007, two, sorry, 2013, but also uh, Airbus is putting something forward as well as perhaps Lockheed Martin and maybe even Boeing. And so, Helen, if, if you had the money and you had to <laughs> pick one of the aircraft that is likely to be put forward for this competition, which one would you be not erring towards. Not that you're putting me on the spot no, there, No, not at all. Okay, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm more inclined to think that single engines are good training helicopters. However, on the other side of the coin, there's the two-engine argument where the helicopter's a better place for what's the pilots are going to fly next. Um, but looking at what's being offered by perhaps the current contenders, Bell has said that they'll be looking to offer two aircraft. It's single engine 407 GXI um, and it's twin engine 429. Now, I'm, I'm, I've I was quite surprised that they weren't going to put forward the 505 Jet Ranger X, which might seem a bit ambitious from my perspective because I guess it's a too lighter requirement compared to the 407 GXI. But it is something that I've been speaking to Bell about over the years that they've said is a military training helicopter potential platform. Um, but could it be that the Leonardo clinch it with their TH-119, which is a derivative of the AW-119? Now, let's bear in mind that Leonardo are fresh from success with Boeing for the US Air Force's Huey replacement programme. Um, so thinking about flight diversification, do the US Navy want to go with what the US Air Force are going for? Um, or... 
the other side of the coin is Airbus. Now they're offering potentially potentially offering their twin engine H135. Now this does differ to what the US Army has with their UH-72A Lakota, which is the H145M. But again, are we thinking if we're thinking about fleet diversification, would we want to go for something in a similar portfolio or from the same manufacturer? So Beth, you did ask me to choose one. I can't. So I'm going to say I'd like them to fly a single engine helicopter. But thank you, Beth. Thank you, Richard, both for your insights this week. We've been joined by staff reporter Kate Marta. Hello, Kate. Hello, Helen. And she's quite literally just got back to Shepherd Towers after attending DGI Europe Geospatial Intelligence Conference. Kate, how was the event and um, what key takeaways did you take from it? Well, Helen, I thought probably one of the most interesting things that I actually saw at the conference uh, today was this senior NATO official um, who works for the Joint Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Unit. And he was speaking about how NATO is taking this renewed interest in GeoInt. And that was kind of based on the lessons learned during the 2011 Unified Protector in Libya, which the NATO official called a catalyst in creating one of these significant changes in the alliance's approach to GeoInt. And did he give any pointers or did he outline any ways that GON was going to be worked on? Yeah, so actually he said that he outlined a number of future projects. He said that uh, before this summer, NATO is actually uh, scheduled to receive the first of five uh, platforms to comprise the Alliance's first ever organic intelligence collection platform. And that will be called the Alliance Ground Surveillance. He also said that NATO is working towards developing a geoint policy to develop geoint coherence and interoperability within a NATO structure. Did he provide any kind of key challenges that might be related to geoint or anything else that still faces NATO in this sphere? Yes, yeah, so he actually said that bandwidth is providing right. a massive problem. And I think that's quite a theme in general anyway. He's saying because this sheer amount of data that they're getting in from all of their different places, so not just satellites, but also from the internet, from obviously anywhere, this is providing quite a challenge to the bandwidth. And that's something they're really struggling with. And then on top of that, also interoperability between nations. So trying to get the nations being able to talk to each other, to trust each other, and also be using the same sort of systems or platforms as well. Excellent. Thank you, Kate, for that snapshot into GeoInt that was a focal point at DGI Europe. wanted to take a short break into the podcast to tell you about Shepherd Studio. Studio is our branded content offering which gives industry a more creative way to tell their stories. Shepherd Studio works closely with companies and event organisers across the aerospace and defence industry to provide bespoke co-branded solutions. Whether it is support of a particular campaign, content surrounding a major trade show or bringing Studio on board to more effectively tell a company story. Studio has already been adopted by many of the major defence primes. If you're interested in learning more about Studio projects and how they could benefit your company, please contact us at www.shepherd.studio. Last week, Shepherd's editor for Soft, Scott Gawley. Hello, Scott. 
Hi, Helen. How are you? Attended the SHOT Show in Las Vegas, an event that has become an annual fixture for many in the military and special forces. First off, Scott, I'm very new, I'm very novice to SOF, as particularly SHOT Show. Why would, why would you attend that show? After all, isn't the event dedicated to shooting, hunting and outdoor trade? Well, exactly. The show itself is dedicated to activities like hunting. There is no question about that. But the presence of so many small arms specialists over the years has established SHOT as a, a, a geographic focus around which military representatives have created additional events. Um, and a, one example of this, which we reported on in Shepard, was a sources sought announcement released last year from United States Special Operations Command, which highlighted what they called the International Special Operations Forces SHOT Show Range Event. And it was held out on a nearby Air Force base prior to SHOT Show, several days prior to SHOT Show. And in that event, they highlighted a range of interests, not just small arms. They highlighted interests in crew-served weapons, um, in a number of platforms that they wanted to see demonstrated for their international partners and for themselves. Okay, so is it all just small arms? Can you expand a bit more, please? Sure. Um the ISOF range event that I just noted brought systems, it brought vehicles into town. Uh, an example was the two days prior to shot, Shepard received an invitation to come out and ride along in a Navistar prototype vehicle that the company has developed for a U.S. SOCOM program called Purpose Built, excuse me, Purpose Built non-standard commercial vehicle. Now, the NSCV program is currently delivering non-standard commercial vehicles. These are vehicles that appear as commercial vehicles seen around the world, but have special modifications for soft, some survivability and some performance modifications. Battelle is currently providing those vehicles under contract. But the soft community is looking out to a next generation, to a purpose-built vehicle that may not be based on the international chassis. And what that design would do, as they see it, is allow those vehicles to go back through a reset period to lower the overall life cycle costs. So we were riding around in a Navistar prototype that looked extremely similar to a Toyota Hilux Vigo truck. Um, the same event uh, brought a stabilized weapon mount from Paradigm mounted on a Can-Am off-road vehicle that had been modified by Franklin Armory. So we were able to do some shooting on the move. So it's gone well beyond small arms. So it was just the show and that range event, Scott? Well, actually, there is one other event uh, that is the day prior to SHOT Show, and it's a formal event. It's industry day at the range, and separate from SHOT, it allows industry representatives to go out and spend an entire day either test firing or looking at small arms systems. And that also has spun off some 
interesting um, quasi-military aspects. Uh, for example, we were out at range event, and we got some informal shooting coaching from uh, former Canadian sniper uh, Rob Furlong. Uh, Rob Furlong is the former world record holder for a sniper kill, if you can say that, um, at more than 2,600 yards during Operation Anaconda. So a chance to get some long-range shooting instruction from someone like Rob Furlong was pretty amazing. Uh, in terms of hardware, one of the ranges there was a Maxim Defense Range, and they unveiled their new, what they call their PDX design. Their PDX grew out of work that that company did for the U.S. SOCOM Personal Defense Weapon Solicitation. It's developed in both 5.56 NATO and 7.62 by 39, the, the AK round. Um, in talking with the company, we discovered that the weapon was not only at the range day event, but it had been out at the ISOF range event the previous week, and a company representative noted that one U.S. partner, we'll say one Five Eyes partner in particular, had been so impressed by their their first exposure to the PDX that they have already purchased two of them for testing by one of their special ops elements. Um, one more example of, of the, the range day, and it occurred at Maxim Defense also, one of their representatives is Chris Peranto, uh, Tonto Peranto, former Army Ranger and one of the CIA security contractors who was on the roof in Benghazi during the action portrayed in 13 hours. He also used one of the nights at SHOT Show to host a private premiere party and screening of a new docu-series he is launching, War Heroes with Chris Peranto. So there is this military edge to the show. Sounds like a great first-hand experience there for you, Scott, to kind of get that real-life feeling of the equipment that does end up in the hands of the warfighter. Um, but how about the SHOT Show itself, Scott? I mean, what were your kind of key takeaways and what were you writing about? Well, as both the soft editor and the milllog.com editor at Shepard, uh, the show presented a number of examples of both systems of interest to soft and some new military logistics equipment, which was, it's a nice blend. So one example, uh, Sig Sauer in their booth actually exhibited uh, a little scene system called the Surge or the Suppressed Upper Receiver Group that they are building for U.S. SOCOM. And it's based on the company's MCX system that was selected by U.S. SOCOM to upgrade existing soft M4A1 weapons to allow for a continuous suppressed use. And as I said, it hasn't been seen very often, and yet there was one on display at shot. So we were fortunate to be able to get them to remove it from the display, and we shot a number of resulting photos and um, even some video clips that we'll be posting to specialops.com in the next few days. Um, and right next to where they had the surge displayed, they had a number of different scopes on display as well, including one that 
SIG calls the Tango 6T. Well, in mid-January this year, uh, the DOD announced that the Tango 6T uh, had been selected as the scope and accompanying Alpha 4 ultralight mount for use by U.S. Special Operations Forces. So there's a chance for that kind of hands-on thing. On the logistics side, um, Pelican, for example, Pelican Cases introduced a new long case design, and to emphasize its utility in the military market, they had it on display with a Barrett sniper rifle in it. Uh, Other designs, an Israeli firm came in uh, run by former military operators with a number of rope, repelling rope work designs that they are now offering to the U.S. market. They say they're fielded with special ops units other elsewhere, and they wanted to show them off. Um, other content, not real content, but other things that were of great interest to Shepard, uh, we ran into a lot of old friends there. Um, in walking through the Barrett exhibit, we ran into Stu Braden, who's the president and CEO of the Global Soft Foundation. Uh, we've been fortunate to attend several events sponsored by the Global Soft Foundation in the past. Uh, we will do so again in March. They have an event coming up in Tampa, and we will be there. Uh, so it was great to talk to Stu. Stu acknowledged it was his first SHOT Show. He had heard about it. People had told him about it. And now that he's finally been, he understood why. Um, Stu was accompanied by Rick Lamb, and we have had the pleasure of speaking with Rick Lamb a number of times. Uh, He can only be described as a a special operations legend, and anyone who does not know Rick Lamb's story should absolutely look it up. It is pretty amazing. That's one I'll definitely be looking into, Scott. Thank you so much. I mean, you're waxing quite lyrical there about the SHOT Show, so I feel a bit silly to be asking you this next question, but... The next edition, will you be there? Absolutely. Without a doubt, we will be there. Thank you so much, Scott. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Helen. It's my pleasure. I'm here with Matt Smith, who is our Director of Analysis here at Shepherd Media. Hi, Matt. Hi, Helen. The Plus team and yourself have been working furiously over the past several months on our Shepherd Plus Business Intelligence Service. So for the benefit of our listeners, Matt, could you tell us exactly what is Shepherd Plus? Sure thing, Helen. So Shepherd Plus is a market intelligence tool for the uh, defence and aerospace sector. It combines a database of military equipment and news and analysis from Shepherd journalists, analysts and our subject matter experts. It's available through a web portal and all of our data is fully searchable and can be exported into Excel for further analysis. So what kind of information is available, Matt, and how is the PLUS tool used by its subscribers? So the main feature of our, of our tool is, uh, is a database which provides information on who is buying which military equipment. Mm-hmm. Each record contains information like order and delivery numbers, unit costs, uh, key product attributes, as well as a narrative description of, uh, of the system itself. We also link all of the major subsystems like weapons, engines, and electronic systems to, to the main record. So what can we expect from Shepard Plus in 2019 in terms of further developments or upgrades to the system? 
Well, we currently focus on armoured vehicles, helicopters, unmanned systems and artillery and air defence. Uh, in the future, we're looking to add a naval warfare section and we plan to expand that further to also include combat aircraft. Uh, another thing we're working on is a uh, programmes module and this will cover unawarded procurement programmes. Uh, the idea here is to give more insight and deeper insight into equipment markets. Uh, our first programme forecast will cover military vehicles and we expect to have that ready in March. So there you have it, Chapeau Plus. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Helen. So if you want to find out more, you can email plus at shepherdmedia.com or contact us through our website. For our industry interview this week, Editor-in-Chief Richard Thomas caught up with David Willems, Head of Business Development at UMS Skelder. The two discussed the joint venture's key milestones for the V200B and R350 unmanned VTOL systems, as well as looking ahead to 2019 and targets for the company. David, thank you very much for joining us here on the Weekly Defence podcast. Uh, What sort of milestones has Skeldar uh, achieved in 2018 with its two platforms? Richard, thank you for having me on the programme. 2018 was an amazing year for UMS Keldar, as a matter of fact. We have launched the V200B, which was the big and the first uh, major development since we started the joint venture with Saab. As you know, the V200B is an improved platform with um, um, new um, avionics, new equipment on it, new data link, uh, improved weight and uh, increased uh, range and performances in general. That was the first milestone. Then, of course, we entered into an agreement with Scanfield to be able to produce in large quantities the V200, which means it's industrialization. So we migrated from a garage shop to really an industrial uh, situation. And then, of course, we, based on that, we secured, of course, some, some extremely relevant contracts with the German Navy and at the end of the year with the European Maritime Safety Agency. So for the V200, the year was a total success. As far as, far as the, the R350 is concerned, we have handed over and delivered uh, serial number 10 to our German partner ESG, following a, a series of campaign and tests that we have lasted a, a few months, actually. And then, of course, we have performed uh, man-on-man teaming uh, trials with the German MOD very successfully. 2018 was definitely uh, the best year so far in UMS history. What about the acquisition, I think it was last year, of course, of uh, Hearth? Um, you've mentioned that the major difference between the Skeldar's V200 engine and those of the competitors is that your engine is more tolerant of JP5. So how crucial was the acquisition of Hearth for the company? It was a must, to be honest. Uh, we needed to secure our supply chain and had the opportunity to do so. So what happened in May, we announced the acquisition of the entire Hearth company because they have been in business for 90 years. They've produced a million engines. They are really the two-stroke pioneers and they are filling many verticals. Of course, the UAV, but also sports utility, uh, experimental aircraft, water pumps, uh, and, and you name it. It's a very diversified company. So it made also economical sense to acquire the company. Since the restructure, we have, of course, um, boosted the production capacities, hired new skills to be able to uh, produce, of course, further uh, development on our own engine and be prepared for the next generations of engines that will equip the V200. 
that's part of the business. Uh, next to that, we are selling extremely reliable engines to another 20 odd uh, manufacturers of UAV worldwide. So it was a strategic acquisition uh, that meant much more for UMS than just securing its own supply chain. Do you see any challenges for Skeldar in terms of getting the, uh, getting your, your systems into military use? And because there's a lot of uh, trial programs and development programs, but not a lot of navies are actually actively using VTOL unmanned systems. How do you kind of bridge that challenge, the gap there? Yeah, it's a very good uh, point, actually. The Germans were effectively the first Navy to uh, acquire VTOL capabilities and, and, and with the aim of, of, of uh, fielding them this, this year already. So I think that uh, in the discussions that I have with navies worldwide, the common uh, topic is that they all want to have VTOL capabilities, but not all of them understand what they are going to do with it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nice to have, and it's a must-have for those who have been using uh, previously fixed wing with very heavy logistics. I think that what attracts them to uh, move to rotary wing is essentially the reduction of footprint size, the ability to carry multiple payloads, and to have as close as possible as it can be a multi-mission um, a capability on board. And I think, of course, as you mentioned, um, all the navies uh, want to have a heavy fuel compliant engines. So the challenges for us really are to, um, of course, uh, secure additional navy customers and to be able to fulfill the different missions that they wish to perform using one single asset. Yeah. Outside of uh, military use, what about opportunities in the commercial or civil sectors? Are you actively pursuing uh, opportunities there? We are. We, we have just been awarded uh, one lot for the European Maritime Safety Agency, which de facto becomes our our most important civilian customer. Um, we believe that this type of activity will uh, spin off and and be uh, replicated elsewhere in the world. But we know that we are going to be extremely busy flying several platforms uh, in different locations for EMSA. Uh, that's one of the activities. We also believe that the uh, power and energy sector uh, is going to start using large uh, VTOL such as ours to uh, perform missions from the shore and fly to offshore uh, assets that they need to uh, either secure or inspect. Uh, we can see um, we see a significant trend, I would say, in that uh, in that domain. Just closing, what sort of milestones or targets have you set yourself for 2019? What are you trying to do? Well, we, we have to deliver now to the various customers, you know, that uh, have engaged with us. Um, in addition to, uh, to this, we are boosting the company currently. We are expanding the organization, uh, not only through, of course, uh, the uh, maritime sector, but also through the civilian sector. Uh, hiring talent in the last uh, few months, we have doubled in size, really. Uh, with uh, with uh, quite a large number of people right now in our three locations, and of course, you know, um, delivering new contracts is is of paramount importance for us on this year. And to that, I would just mention that there will be announcements in due course, which will be uh, very uh, significant for this industry. In due course, in the near term or the long term, towards the end of the year, do you think? <laughs> in the near term. In the near term. David, thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Richard, for your time as well. 
So welcome to this week's Industry Voice, which this week features our sponsor, Namo. I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content for Shepherd Media, and I'm speaking with Ander Lunder, who's the SVP of Communications for Namo. Now, Ander, you're involved in an interesting-sounding event tomorrow. Um, so perhaps as an introduction, maybe you could just tell us what your main focus has been for this past week. Absolutely. Now, this is kind of things that we do uh, now and then. I really wish we could do, had time to do more of. And it's kind of community outreach where we go out and meet with uh, different interest groups. And this this week, I get the opportunity to speak with a group of Norwegian youth politicians. So this week, I've uh, been looking at particularly at the history of our company. And uh, it's been really great to be able to dig deeper into uh, that background, spend some time on that. And I'm, I was just struck by how uh, quickly following World War II, that this international defense cooperation started growing and just how closely uh, the countries were tied together just in a few years. So looking at some of the programs that we consider critical to our security, we're looking at missiles, we're looking at ammunition, uh, looking at aircraft, looking at technology in general. A lot of those were underway already in the 50s. And a lot of the uh, relationships and the cooperation and the uh, the networks that we came to rely on later, a lot of the first seeds were sown there. So I think that's something that we should remember when we start looking at the future also of international defense cooperation. This is something that we've really relied on ever since uh, the end of World War II. This is something that's been at the heart of how we ensure our security, and that's something we really need to protect. And in which um, which programs would you sort of pull out as an example of that? Um, I mean, I know there's been sort of, you know, a number over the years, but when you're speaking at the Mm -hmm. event tomorrow, you know, which of the programs are you going to highlight as as being good examples of that sort of international cooperation? Well, there's a lot of them, but one that really struck me was uh, the Sidewinder program uh, that started in the 50s, really earlier before that, but it became an international program during the late 50s. And there were a working group of European countries working together with the U.S. to develop a production and uh, manufacturing capability in Europe for the Sidewinder. And it's fascinating to look at how, how much of a step up it really was for these uh, companies and for the, uh, for the industries involved and how that exposure to international cooperation and how building these uh, factories and uh, working together on delivering one product helped take these countries a huge step forward, both technologically uh, and manufacturing-wise, but also in terms of how how they cooperated and, uh, and worked together with uh, companies and uh, industry from other countries. It's a huge, huge step forward. So that, that's the message. Obviously, you'll be looking to, to get across at the events. You know, it's kind of some of these sort of younger players come up through the system, just letting them know that this kind of international, you know, outreach and these international kind of cooperation programs, that, that defence kind of gives a good a good example of, of what can be achieved, you know, on an international basis. Absolutely. I think defence is one of the areas where we have to remember that international cooperation is indispensable. And that is something that I feel responsibility as part of industry to try to communicate to those who are not familiar with us. And we have, we have a tendency of uh, 
existing in our own little bubble here. And we need to tell uh, people outside about what we do and why we think that it's important that we do what we do and that we are able to do it the way we're doing it today. There's a reason why we've uh, become such an internationally connected and mutually interdependent industry. And it's because our entire existence is based on that sort of uh, cooperation. And that's, that's an important message. Um, Andrew, thanks for your time and, and good luck with the event tomorrow. Um, and that's, that's been uh, this week's Industry Voice. This episode of Shepherd's Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, NAMO. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please head over to shepherdmedia.com to access all our news stories and subscriber content. We'd love to hear what you thought of the podcast, so please do subscribe, rate and give a review on iTunes or other podcasting platforms. Thanks for listening. Thank you.